The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. A new translation and an exciting new approach to some ancient classics. Brian Dory's Sophocles and the Oedipus Trilogy, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We are firmly in the new year, and so let's get started. We had a lot of good responses to our Roll Doll episode. I'm glad you enjoyed that one. Just as it seems that many of you have enjoyed Mr. Doll himself and his writings. I'm not surprised that he's the children's author for kids who grow up to like literature. I bet that's the case. Probably a very high percentage. And there was one thing I forgot to tell you about, which I'll fill you in on today. But before we get to that, let's talk about our guest. Brian Dorries is here, a self-described evangelisto for classical literature and its relevance to our lives today. Oh, sure, that's easy to say, right? A lot of people probably say that. Anyone who works in classical literature probably would consider themselves to be, well, Brian has put this into action, maybe more than most scholars or translators. He's also the artistic director of a theater company called Theater of War, which, I don't know if he would use the word gonzo to describe their efforts, but it feels kind of gonzo to me, except it's not just about breaking rules and conventions and seeing theater in a new way, in a dramatically new and exciting way. But it has at its core the purest of motives. These plays, classical ancient tragedies, but other plays too, these plays were written to help people survive. Sometimes those were people in need, sometimes people in the midst of war or other upheaval. These were not written for wealthy, educated people to attend and admire and clap politely and then discuss the play over dinner at some fancy restaurant and ultimately conclude that this performance, the performance by so-and-so was engaging and the lighting was wonderful, but the scenery was distracting. And wouldn't it be lovely if the director would take more risks next time? No. That's the, the theater as it is if we're all sort of critics of theater. That's theater as a, a painting in a museum or worse than that, a painting hanging on the wall of someone's house, someone who didn't really like the painting necessarily, but had an interior decorator who suggested the painting because the colors would go nicely with the drapes. And to keep the analogy going, Brian Dorries would say, I think, well, that's not the way to look at a painting, or it's one way, but it's not the best way. The best way is when you're alone, your soul is lost and empty, and you encounter a painting and you stand before it, and you immerse yourself in it, you apprehend it, or you approach a painting, maybe you turn the corner, maybe you're feeling good about yourself, things are going just fine, and what you see arrests you, and you feel like you've never seen anything so compelling before, and it makes you think about who you are and how you got there and why you're sometimes not happy, 
And don't you miss your parents? Damn it. Why were they not there for you before? And where are they now? Whatever you have in you that is coiled up, whatever pain, whatever hardship, whatever memory, maybe that's the experience you had in war. Maybe it's the the riot that your town has gone through. Maybe it's a tragedy on a massive scale, or maybe it's an individual tragedy or a bad choice or a crime you committed. Whatever is in there for you, you at the height of heights or the depths of despair, that's what the painting should speak to, should grab you, not intellectually or not intellectually only, but emotionally and viscerally should drag you into its gravity. And in the theater, you're there with other people watching these actors on the stage, and you're not sitting there as a pseudo-critic or someone who's going to make three or four good points about the play at dinner and then go to sleep in your comfortable bed. You're there as a human being, stark, defenseless, alone, attuned, exposed, struggling, striving, beaten down, battered, but maybe with some hope too, some longing for community, some undying optimism. You're a mix of light as well as shadow. You're part of that play. You're part of that performance. You're there too. That's who the Greeks were when they went to see these plays, and that's who you are or who you can be when you go to see these plays. The scenarios, the situations... The dilemmas and the dramas within these plays are timeless, and the benefits to treating them as timeless are vast. So that's Brian Dorries. You'll hear all about it. He'll put it in words better than I can. He's also translated the Oedipus Trilogy by Sophocles, which we will talk about a bit. And then we pivot to the theater and his vision for it and how he's realized that vision. And I think you will find it fascinating. At least I did. Okay. Roald Dahl. Here's what I left out last time. The story of Roald Dahl's funeral. He was of Norwegian descent, as we discussed, and I don't know if that's why this happened, if that's what gave them this idea, but they did give him a kind of Viking funeral, meaning he was buried with objects important to him. Think of the Vikings. A Viking captain buried on his ship with... Lots of gifts and treasure. For Vikings, it was usually jewelry and other gifts and valuables, but it could also be things like arrows for a warrior or blacksmithing tools for a blacksmith, things that could help you in the next life. They even sometimes sacrificed slaves to bury with important people so that those important people could be assisted by them in Valhalla. My goodness, that's so ridiculous. I don't even know what to say. It's just awful. Imagine being that slave. (laughs) It's beyond words. Okay, Dahl, that's not what Dahl did, fortunately. Dahl had a different set of items. He was buried with a set of his beloved pencils, which is highly appropriate. He had a certain kind of pencil he liked. Well, why not make sure he has those in the next life? We want him writing books when he's in Valhalla or heaven or wherever he went. And he had his snooker cues there with him in the coffin to entertain himself, maybe make a little money through a hustle or two. That would be fitting. He had a bottle of Burgundy, which was his favorite 
wine, and of course, some high-quality chocolate. His lifelong passion for sweets and for chocolate in particular, passion to the point of obsession, which served him so well when it came to write about Charlie and Willy Wonka. By the way, here's another little tidbit I left out. There was a real-life Willy Wonka who lived... <laughs> Dahl didn't know him. He was living in Nebraska and working as a postman. Willy Wonka. <laughs> Imagine how that guy's life changed once that book came out. He wrote Dahl a letter. I haven't read the letter. I imagine it says, hey, man, thanks a lot. All the names in the world, you had to pick mine. And now all I hear about is chocolate. <laughs> I haven't read or killing kids. I haven't read the letter. That's just what I imagined. The original Willy Wonka in the book, in the early drafts of the book, was called Mr. Ritchie, which is a little on the nose. Rich man, factory owner, and poor Charlie, etc. I like Charlie Bucket and Willy Wonka just fine. Two good names. Okay. Still talking about the coffin and the Viking funeral. The last thing that was there buried with Mr. Dahl when he died in 1990 was a power saw. Now, maybe that was in tribute to a hobby of his. Maybe he was a woodworker. But I like to think it was a nod to the darker side of Roald Dahl, as seen in his children's novels, as well as in his short stories for grown-ups, which can be full of mystery and the macabre. Maybe the power saw was to be there for Roald if it turned out that he had been buried alive. An Edgar Allan Poe kind of burial. That would be the way to cut yourself out of the coffin, right? Power saw could come in handy. Although, here's a twist. There's no power down there. You wake up, realize what's happened. Your family has made an awful mistake. Your oxygen supply is dwindling. Luckily, you thought ahead. You reach for your power saw to cut your way out. You press the button to start it. Click. Nothing. Just you and the darkness and the vanishing pocket of oxygen. Next stop, Wormsville. I don't know if that's what happened, but somehow I think Roald Dahl might have smiled grimly at the thought. At least if it were happening to someone else. Or if it had come out of his imagination and made its way into those beloved pencils of his... And onto the page. Okay. Brian Dory's and the Oedipus Trilogy. After this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Brian Dorries, a writer and director who is currently serving as the Artistic Director of Theater of War Productions. He's also an accomplished translator, and his latest work is A Tackling of Sophocles, giving us a new version of the Oedipus Trilogy. Brian Dorries, welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, thanks so much for uh, inviting me on. Okay, so there's a lot about your work bringing these plays to communities in crisis that I really want to get to, but why don't we start with you? I understand that you grew up in Virginia and have spent a lot of time in New York. When did ancient Greece enter the picture? It entered the picture when I was nine years old Mm. and um, living in Newport News, Virginia, where I grew up and was invited to take part in a performance or a production of a Greek tragedy at my father's community college. And I played one of the children in Euripides' Medea that get killed by their jealous and mother. And, you know, it really had, it made an impression, obviously. Yeah. And it wasn't instantaneous. Like I knew at age nine that I would spend the rest of my life directing and translating and presenting Greek tragedies for various audiences. But, but I do remember it very clearly and, and it, it touched me in a really profound way. And so years later, when I ended up going to college in Ohio, at Kenyon college, and when I was presented with the opportunity to learn ancient Greek, there was this kind of gut response I had to, you know, that opportunity. And it felt like that was where I should place my time and uh, effort, even though I wasn't a particularly great language student prior to that moment. And and that's sort of what led to a deeper dive into ancient Greece, into other ancient cultures, into classical languages, into etymology, into a different way of reading than I'd ever experienced prior to learning classical languages. Right. Or did you consider yourself an actor or a director or a theater person, or was it the immersion in the language that led you to an interest in those endeavors? Yeah, I mean, the good thing about the college I went to is that you didn't have to identify yourself. It was just sort of presumed that you did all of those things. Oh, Um, right, right. It was one of the the few places on the planet where, you know, you didn't have to talk about being a writer because it was just presumed that everyone wrote. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I live in the East Village in New York City now, and that's it's pretty much the same. You, know, you don't need to go around wearing an armband saying that you're an artist. But I was interested in theater. I was interested in, you know, classics. I was interested in anthropology and religion. And it was in studying the languages that I came to a new relationship with theater and acting and came to start, you know, asking a series of questions about what theater was for mm. and, and what it could do that perhaps we had lost touch with as a culture. And the beginning of those questions started as an undergraduate, but then really um, started to take hold when I began presenting 
ancient Greek tragedies outside of academic settings. Yeah. So why tragedy and why ancient Greek tragedy in particular? Well, I mean, there are a number of answers to that question. The tragedy, um, people often say, well, why don't you do comedy, Brian? You know, mm. All these, yeah, all these tragedies, right. you know, in a given week. The headlines or, you know. are awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we need, we all need a little break. Yeah. Um, there's something counterintuitive about tragedy, which is on stage, tragedies depict characters learning too late, mm. usually millise milliseconds too late. And in those milliseconds, they've destroyed themselves, their families and generations to come. And that's what happens in the plays, and there's no denying that. But the impact of watching people learn too late on audiences that have experienced the sort of moral complexity mm. uh, of life is not typically, from my experience, that people go home and are depressed and sort of wallowing in their own lack of agency and, you know, in this sort of fatalistic world in which we're sort of doomed. In fact, there's a kind of acknowledgement in the performance degree tragedy for audiences that have experienced life's extremities that this is what characterizes our lives. This is, you know, that we, we face complex ethical decisions every day for which there may not be right answers and by which we'll be haunted no matter what we decide to do. And rather than being isolated by those decisions, tragedy creates a, a space where we can collectively acknowledge the but the moral complexity of our lives, but also the baggage that we're all carrying around because of the choices we've made. Mm. And so tragedy, from my perspective, is an ancient technology for communalizing trauma. And so what I see when people attend our events is a sense of relief passing over people, a sense of connection and camaraderie that develops, a feeling of community. You see this in other instances when when communities are visited by, you know, real tragedies, which is to say, you know, when Hurricane Sandy came to New York City, all of a sudden, you're, you know, we're all talking to our neighbors and engaging with people who are experiencing homelessness on the street. And, you know, uh, during COVID, we're applauding our, you know, first responders. And to a certain extent, some of us at least are looking out for our neighbors. And I get the sense that ancient tragedy as a technology is designed to actually bring in, bring us into that state of sort of fellow feeling of, of interconnection, of being part of a larger collective that also is experiencing trauma and loss and mm. these extremities and reminding us of what it means to be in that emotional and cognitive space without actually having to experience violence or loss. Right. And so tragedy, I think, is a technology for reaping the benefits that come from tragedy of, of, of extremity of loss without actually having to, you know, tragedies are also, you know, plays about people who all believe they're right. Mm. And, and yet someone is always inevitably going to die precisely because everyone believes they're right. Right. And I, and I think that helps us as we're watching them acknowledge that we may believe we're right, but there are consequences to believing that we're right and pursuing it so doggedly. And maybe just maybe for a brief moment, we should step back from our positions and the roles we're all playing like the actors on the stage and interrogate, not just whether we're right, but what, what it would mean to listen to another person's position right? or what they, what they believe to be right with the hope that maybe someone at the end of the road doesn't have to die. Hmm. If we do, if we do that. So I see tragedy as, um, even though the word tragedy, you know, is, synonymous with uh, lots of negative uh, feelings, I actually see it as a way of, it, there's hope in tragedy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the hope in tragedy is not on the stage. It's in the audience that comes together to bear witness to the truth of what's portrayed on stage. 
and it's in the audience that comes together to remain in the same space and endure together as a community the discomfort of what they're witnessing. Right. So there's so many aspects of tragedy that are useful and we've deployed them in many different settings to help communities that have either experienced loss or have not found a way to articulate feelings of loss and betrayal or trauma. Um, right. tragedy, tragedy can provide a vocabulary and also the energy that's needed in a room that empowers people to speak things that are unspeakable otherwise. Right. So let's talk about the work that that Theater of War Productions does and, and kind of a night at the theater. It, I think a lot of people have the, the paradigm. What they probably have in mind is an individual watching a performance and feeling the things inside that you just described, all of the the way that you experience the tragedy and the feelings that it provokes and, and the way that it allows you to reflect on your own life and your own choices that have been made. And then the experience of being in a, a theater audience gives you that sense of community more than you would if you were at home reading the play or, or watching television or something. But it sounds like Theater of War does at least two things differently. And one is that it it has a sort of town hall discussion afterwards, is, is what I understand. And the other is that it goes specifically to communities who maybe the audience has shares something in common already. So maybe you could tell us how that works and, and what the original idea for it was and what it looks like in practice. Yeah, I'm happy to. So I would argue that there is a big disjunct between what theater was like in the ancient world and what it's like now. Mm. Almost to the point where when we say the word theater, we're not talking about the same thing anymore. Right. And partially that's the last 150 years where the sort of principal experiment of the theater in the West, but also in other countries and parts of the world, has been to plunge the audience into darkness and then illuminate this, what's happening on stage with light. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of that, alongside the development of the cinema, to really commit, I would say overcommit to a kind of naturalism that's not naturalistic at all, but that is based on the idea of a silent, rapt audience, mm. you know, breathing together, sitting side by side yeah. uh, as a community, but not expressing itself in any way. It's to the point where now, like, there are actors, and I've seen this quite often, who, you know, once a cell phone goes off or someone sneezes too loudly, you know, attack the audience. Or reprimand or scold the audience (laughs) as if they've somehow committed some kind of sacrilegious um, crime. And while I used to feel that way, I actually think the crime is the other other way around. And that Ah. is the crime of silencing and marginalizing the audience. Mm. So that in the contemporary theater, any possibility of a discussion taking place is relegated to the very end of a performance. And it's usually tacked on. And often... It involves bringing the artists back on stage and asking them questions about themselves and their process for making the work, which all of us, the audience and the actors and the performers, all find to be deadly and banal and soul crushing. (laughs) And there's no one who's experienced it who doesn't feel that way about it. And yet we seemingly can't think our way out of the trap that we now find ourselves in. Right. And the trap is... Yes, absolutely. Um, when you go to see a play, whether it's a Greek tragedy or a contemporary play or a play by Eugene O'Neill or, you know, there is something happening in the room at a, a deep communal level. And the same technology, the same things that are, were at work, some of the same things in the ancient world are at work in our theater today. But instead of talking about what just happened, 
which is more of a spiritual experience than anything else. Mm. I think we spend a lot of time in our culture talking about how it came to be. You know, um, you know the, the the most deadening and banal question that gets asked almost every time at what's called a talk back after a play is how did you memorize your lines or <laughs> how did you prepare to scream in that way or right you know, right and that surface level sort of response creates a kind of animosity between the performers and the audience. It creates a kind of feeling of superiority and the part of artists over their audiences, and that just continues to get reinforced over and over again. Well. Yeah. Our model, and this is something I discovered very early on, is actually based on a totally different attitude toward audience. From my perspective, the audience knows more than we do. Hmm. The audience with something at stake has more to teach us than we to teach them. And certainly, the audience has more of value to contribute to an exchange than the artists do. Yeah. And when you approach an audience, whether it's a busload of tourists from New Jersey, or it's a group of soldiers who've returned from combat, or it's men or women who are experiencing homelessness or it's any number of the communities that we engage with, when you approach an audience with reverence for what they might know and what they might be able to contribute to an exchange in a theater or in a theatrical type space, new things open up and new possibilities. And I think this is based on the basic the principles of Greek tragedy, which took place in an amphitheater. And the word amphitheater in Greek means the place where we see in both directions where I see you and you see me and we see each other reflected in the stories that are being performed. And while a guy like me didn't pop out afterwards and facilitate a discussion after one of Sophocles' plays in the ancient world, there's no doubt that they were talking about them. And because they were, they were in a space where they would, could see each other's reactions and where I imagine um, they're you know, spending the entire day together, sitting shoulder to shoulder, bearing witness to these stories of loss and betrayal and grief only brought them closer into a sense of community. And now we go to a theater, we're plunged into darkness, we're silenced, we're reprimanded, we're assaulted by people with clipboards on the way in, told when to use the bathroom. And if we're lucky, there's like a brief legislated moment where we are invited to be part of a talk back. And even that word almost implies, how dare you talk back at any other time other than this legislated moment. And to me, that's kind of an act of violence. Right. And we've gotten to this place where we have such little regard for the audience um, that we almost don't want to ever know what they have to say. So mm. in our model, the discussion lasts longer than the performance. The performance itself, although it involves many times Oscar award-winning actors who are part of our company, uh, you know, and the quality of the performance is not something that we compromise on. The real performance in our model is when we get to the discussion. And mm. the discussion is when people who've lived the lives that are being described on play on stage, who have experienced the extremities of life and death, of love, of loss, who know the meaning of sacrifice, people whose lives are of mythological proportions, people who may not have had any education or privilege or ever have seen a play before in their entire lives, stand up and speak these beautiful uh, monologues that exceed the beauty of the monologues in the ancient play that are more rhetorically complex, that are full of insight that one could never have anticipated until it's happening, and the stakes of what they're saying in the moment may very well be of life and death for them, whether it's about seeking help, or it's about speaking out about a stigmatized subject, or it's about raising one's hand and speaking out um, within an institution where they might be punished for saying what they're saying. And that is the most exhilarating thing. I mean, it doesn't doesn't even you can't even compare the two things when people stand up and do that versus 
actors on a stage, even great actors on a stage. Let me ask a, a clarifying question. So I, I know stand-up comedians will often say, well, the audience is the real judge of whether something is funny. The laugh is there or it isn't. It's not up to to us to really decide. And sometimes we're surprised and, and all of that. And that's sort of a allowing the crowd's response to be a judgment on the performance. It sounds like what you're talking about is a little bit different, where it's more like, your job, as you see it as performers, is to present the ideas that are coming out of this play, and then that has the power because of the power of these plays and the themes and the, the characters and the decisions made and all of that to kind of inspire in the audience a sort of uh, human response that it kind of gets away from the idea of just a critique of the performance, but actually goes much deeper. Am, am I getting that right? Yeah. I mean, everything you're saying makes sense. It's just that I would argue that, so a couple other things about our work, all of our performances are free. So they're not transactional. You don't, mm. it's not like you buy a ticket and then we don't, our work doesn't hinge on whether the New York times reviews it or not. The whole idea of like a criticism based model is out the window for us because also we see our work not as an aesthetic object that is being critiqued. It's different every night. We see it as an act of service mm -hmm. and a gift exchange, an exchange with an audience where the actors present something and in exchange for that, the audience presents something back. And the actors who are part of our company, and now there are now over 250 of them, highly acclaimed, you know, actors who participate, they keep coming back for a number of reasons. But one of them is because it's so the experience of working not only in the theater, but in film and television is malnourishing. It's it, there is there is mm. no ex, there's no exchange there. It's transactional. It's based on the very principles you talked about earlier of like you put forward a performance and then it's critiqued. But when a performance is actually an act of service, it doesn't matter if it's necessarily the best performance the actor ever delivered. Yeah. Um, in fact, sometimes delivering a kind of mediocre performance where you see the actor um, straying and then coming back and finding a way forward is more helpful than something that was polished. And um, this is something Brecht knew, I think, in his theater, that there's a, the polish is kind of the enemy to sincere and authentic exchange. Mm. So so um, there's so many things about what you said that, you know, don't sync up with our model and yeah. with what we're trying to accomplish, which is to say, I also think that that impulse to critique, whether it's academically or in the, in sort of the newspapers or after a play to go off and sort of critique everything, everyone's a critic, is actually an avoidance strategy mm. that we have developed as a species and as a sort of people living in late capitalist America to not engage with what really just happened in the room. Mm. And what really just happened was a deep spiritual experience that touched us to our core, but instead we're going to go talk about whether, the you know, the really costumes banal. or the yeah, lighting exactly, or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so questions of aesthetic value are not high on my list because more important to my company and to our values and ethos is actually who is in the room and how do we get those people? How do we build the trust to build an audience, not just of people who shared an experience, but also people who are radically opposed in their positions. Mm. And in our tent in the last year, we've held members of the squad, con you know, Congressman Jamal Bowman and Ariana uh, uh, Presley and, you know, uh, AOC has tweeted about our work. We've also had Republican gov um, mayors participating. And, you know, we got a day was named after us, our company in Mount Vernon, Ohio, because of the work we've been doing in, in this community that's voted 72 percent for Trump. And the reason that we have, you know, these radically polarized elected officials and activists, you know, and 
people from communities that don't see eye to eye in our tent is that there's room for them in this tent. And that's because um, we're not asking people to agree. We're just asking people to listen to each other's interpretations of the story. And we all, I think, can acknowledge that we're entitled to an interpretation, even if we don't agree with these other, others' interpretations. And in this instance, it becomes a lot easier to talk about political questions or ethical questions when we have just one step of remove. You know, these plays aren't about our contemporary times. They're 2,500 years right. old. We're not saying to the audience in red state America or in San Francisco, this is you. We're asking people to reflect, well, what do you see of yourself, your community, your family, you know, your military unit, the people you work with in this ancient story. Right. And that creates this discursive space where people are less afraid to be vulnerable in front of each other. And so we found, I, I, you know, that the theater is a tool. And I think it was in the ancient world, the democracy out of which it really evolved in the West, concurrent with the, with the development of Athenian democracy, that it's a tool for bringing everybody together under a tent and engaging in dialogue that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Yeah. Um, and that's another really exciting element of what we've discovered over the last 13 years doing this work. I can definitely see how a play that was about, say, contemporary politics or something would would make it hard to have that kind of a, a dialogue and a discussion afterwards because people would kind of have preformed opinions and, and they'd get locked back into the same sort of rhetoric and, and positions that you see every night on uh, a cable news channel or something. And if you look at uh, the ancient Greek tragedies, you would get to something elemental and you're talking about, you know, mothers and children and, and things like that that are, are really universal and really basic for all of us. How does it work when a situation like the Oedipus story, for example, might be something that people haven't experienced directly is it just a matter because they're seeing humanity at its most extreme that that in, in, instills in them a kind of recognition or lets them think about things how it would be for themselves or how do you how do, how does that work or, or you know is it is it ever a problem where people say well that's that's great that we're watching these people but I've never I've never had anything like that happen to me I I honestly think that it just it, to be born and to die you've experienced Mm. Greek tragedy. Mm -hmm. To be born into a world in which you will die, to be born into a world in which you will watch people you love suffer and not be able to stop them from suffering. Mm. There, There is no human across all cultures. And we performed in Japan, we performed for Eastern Europeans. We Now we have people from, a, recently we had an event on Zoom where we had 82 countries tuning in um, and participating. And that's because the one thing that we actually all share is suffering. Mm. And when I think about the United States and how divided we are, and actually how much we're suffering right now, I still have hope because of what I've seen over the last 13 years, the work that we've done in communities across the country, where there is a hidden and sort of profound sense of anguish and suffering. It's manifest in mental health issues, the suicide rate, it's manifest in the opioid epidemic, which knows no boundaries that cuts across all political affiliation. And in the early days of Theater of War, the military project, when we started touring uh, into more conservative communities, it became clear that Americans want to talk about it. Mm. They want to talk about mental health. They didn't want to talk about it 40 years ago 
They may, maybe didn't even want to talk about it at the beginning of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But there's been a kind of awakening uh, brought about by a number of factors. I would argue also a millennial sort of generation that, that kind of demands that we have these conversations, whether mm-hmm. you you know, have regard for the way they demand it or not, they're asking for the conversation. Whereas the uh, we've had members of the so-called greatest generation, World War II generation, stand up in our performances and say, I don't understand why we're talking about this at all. Mm. Okay, we're back with Brian Dory. So, Brian, I, I'm just fascinated by this project. It sounds absolutely wonderful, but it also sounds like it could be kind of tricky to pull off. How mechanically do you make this happen? You Do you give the performance and and do you structure the, the conversation in some way afterwards? How do people know when they can talk and, and who's allowed to talk and how does all that work? Yeah, I mean, there, there's lots of little ways that over the years we've like try to create the most open and welcoming and inclusive environment. One uh-huh. of the ways it starts very early, which is the actors are sort of not over rehearsed. So they make mistakes. Uh-huh. And the first part of our events is always a performance. It could be a reading, whether in person or on zoom, it could be a full blown production, which we've done off Broadway. It could be um, a giant gospel chorus on stage in the, in the case of our project Antigone and Ferguson. And that lasts usually about, an hour, 45 minutes to an hour max. Mm-hmm. And during that performance, you see people struggling in the moment to make sense of the ancient Greek plays or the other texts that we perform, because we don't just perform Greek plays. And um, and their making mistakes is, is critical to modeling for the audience what we're gonna ask of them as soon as the actors are done. So again, mm-hmm. polish is the enemy, sound bites are the enemy you know, of real exchange. As soon as the actors are done, in whatever setting we're performing, they go away, never to be heard from again, because actors are kryptonite to discussion. Oh, I was going to ask about that, because you were saying how much the actors enjoyed being part of it. I, I wondered if they stayed on stage and broke character, or how that worked. Actors, actors staying on stage would only invite the audience to engage in the avoidance strategy that I mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. Just send totally banal questions about acting. Right. The actors have made their contribution. <laughs> They've made their contribution. Now they're going to listen because the real direction comes from the audience, not from me. Yeah. Uh, it comes from an audience with skin in the game, from an audience of people who've experienced life's extremities. Uh, and that's not just people who've gone to war or work in hospitals. That's everyday people. Yeah. And so the actors go away and they go sit in the audience. And most of the actors who work with us obey the rule. Sometimes they they jump forward from the ranks and do speak. But most of the time they don't and because they know that what they're doing is an act of service. And then immediately after the actors have performed, we then bring up four to six members of the community for whom we're performing. Mm. And they are not people with PhDs or on book tour. They are not high ranking people in the community that we're performing for. They're not executive directors or colonels or generals. They are at the line level. They are people who maybe have never spoken before in public in front of an audience. Yeah. They are people who are afforded and empowered the right to be speaking by virtue, not of their privilege or their education, but their proximity to the issues that we're trying to talk about and address. Our model and Theater of War Productions work is based on a different hierarchy 
than one that exists in cultural settings or in higher educational settings. Yeah. That's one of proximity. It's also our belief that sometimes education and privilege is an impediment to the direct and efficacious experience right. of the stories we're trying to perform because people think they know what they're about right. and they use a whole series of other avoidance strategies by intellectualizing what they're experiencing. So we ask these four to six, what we call community panelists, to come up and in the moment, without any prepared remarks, respond from their hearts and their guts to what they heard and saw in the ancient story that resonated with them across time, that spoke their experiences. And they get up and they take the risk of being the first person to speak. They take the risk of being vulnerable often in front of an audience uh, or a community. They uh, usually quote lines from the plays as if they, you know, often as if they'd known the plays their entire lives. Yeah. And um, they relate those quotes to often harrowing personal stories they've never shared in public, maybe even in private. And they sort of set the stage for the discussion that's going to unfold. And as soon as they're done with their brief opening remarks, then I and sometimes other co-facilitators who are part of our company who also have something at stake. You know, um, we have my one of my colleagues here, Dominic DuPont, spent 20 years in prison and um is a credible facilitator and messenger for audiences that have experienced uh, the school to prison pipeline or incarceration or any number of other social justice related issues. So sometimes, um, or one of my other co-facilitators is a social worker from Ferguson, Missouri, and who's sort of his sister was Michael Brown's teacher, high school teacher. And so we ask questions about the play mm. to the audience. So it's not a model where the audience stands up and says, I'd like to ask panelist A to not narrate his trauma. You know, the, we ask the questions and the questions are open-ended. There are yeah, no right. answers. Why do you think Sophocles wrote this play and staged it for 17,000 citizen soldiers in a century in which they saw nearly 80 years of war? What was he trying to do? And of course, no one has a time machine. And of course, the real question we're asking is how this make you feel. But if you ask that question, that's the death of any good conversation. Mm. So people respond earnestly to questions like, why did Sophocles write this play? And then it starts to unfold and we ask other questions. And one of the tricks of facilitating these discussions is to find a way to validate and acknowledge everything that gets said, no matter what I think of it which is to say there is something to be found in every statement that can be validated and supported, even if it's a repugnant thing that's been said. Because sometimes the most repugnant thing is the most useful thing. Right. In a discussion about racism or a discussion about xenophobia or in a discussion. So sometimes it's a challenge, but the key is, and this is, goes back to what you said about sort of documentary theater or documentary itself. There are so many levels on which we as practitioners, artists, whatever you want to call us, condescend to audiences mm. by acting as if because we had a little training and because we're in the business of telling stories, we know them better than they know themselves. Right. So this impulse to say, this is you and I know you, and this can be done by actors. Actors can do this in some of the most uh, sort of hurtful ways, which is to say, you know, even the way act, acting, well, I was talking about naturalism earlier, you know, the, the sort of rules of naturalism have to do with a lot of pauses. A pause can be an act of condescension. If it's almost saying to the audience, we're going to give you time to catch up. Mm. If you believe the audience is 10 steps ahead of you and you have reverence for what they know that you can't possibly understand experientially, then I think the way you tell the story is different than what has come to be sort of the structures of how we tell stories generally for audiences. So we, I, we ask the questions, people stand up, and then when they stand up, they share these stories and they quote lines from plays and sometimes simply quoting a line can bring the audience together in ways that 
one never imagined. And sometimes, as I said, somebody saying something that's unpopular can also create an opportunity for people to interrogate and talk about that statement without it becoming so polarizing that the so-called town hall discussion descends into a shouting match, which is what happens in most town hall discussions when there are oppositional positions in the room. Right. And, you know, this goes back to a certain principle that we've discovered of the work, which is that um, people often ask me this question or they talk about this word that I still don't know what it means, but it's thrown around a lot and sort of abused, which is catharsis. Catharsis. Yes. Right. Right. Aristotle. I have no idea. I mean, mo- there, have been, there have been thousands and thousands of books and pages of books written about what Aristotle meant when he used the word catharsis and his lecture notes that weren't meant to be published that are called the Poetics, which is mm. sort of his treatise on Greek tragedy, written 150 years after the classical tragedies he's describing were performed. Mm. And I, I think it's just really kind of a late 19th century, early 20th century psychobabble term mm-hmm. that has been sort of just appropriated, kind of like empathy. You know, it's it's something that people say, even the word tragedy. And I thought in the early days that the work was about eliciting empathy and maybe even the work catharsis crossed my lips a few times. Mm-hmm. But what I've come to see is that the utility of Greek tragedy um, is that it actually makes us supremely uncomfortable. This goes back to your question of why Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. If the actors have done their work and have done their service for the audience, they have gone to such an extreme place in their portrayal of what's happened on stage that for a brief moment, all of us are scanning for the exits. Mm-hmm. That that there's such palpable discomfort in the room or on Zoom as we perform now that to stay in the room is actually an act of solidarity on the part of the audience that brings them together. And in our model, we don't take it, you know, we don't go four hours. We break the play and then some facilitators get come out and community panelists. And then we can say, you know, it, I could, we can see that everyone was uncomfortable. Now let's talk about why we're so uncomfortable. Yeah. And that becomes the core thread of the conversation, interrogating our own discomfort, acknowledging our own discomfort. And I think most critically staying in the room. And even if we don't agree with each other, making the commitment to being uncomfortable together. And that's the, that's the that's the true utility of Greek tragedy. The note that I give the actors before they go on stage is make them wish they'd never come. Mm. If the actors commit to that, then they do something usually that probably wouldn't pass muster at Lincoln Center or the public theater. It's just something that's it's so extreme. It's not it's no longer consumable. You can't be like I I paid my money and I had that experience and now I'm done. It's something that just rattles you on such a profound level that you'll be thinking about it for hopefully for months and years to come. And the conversation doesn't end in the, in the room. It, it, it radiates out into people's lives in all kinds of really exciting ways. When the people are discussing it, do they end up talking about the play and sort of a, a book club discussion or a, uh, <laughs> here's what the, I no. think the character did this and I think the character did that. It seems like that would not be what you're going for. Well, that's again, another distancing strategy people might right. use in you know, the lifelong learning society. Yeah, yeah. So I had this guy come to one of our performances where we had all gang members and former gang members in the audience talking about a play by Euripides about violence, about community violence. And they related to it, this audience, on such a profound level. We had them sitting side by side with people who were WQXR and WNYC listeners in New York City, which is a classical music and NPR station. So we had this sort of clash of totally different worlds. Totally, and, and these kids, you know, the kids with their feet on the chairs in front of them laughing in the so-called inappropriate moments of the play, 
you know, with an ear pod, you know, AirPod in one ear, half listening, you know, inevitably it's that kid who ends up raising his hand and explicating what's actually happening in the play in the mm. way that no educated person ever could because he knows what community violence is. He's experienced it. And so this guy comes up to me afterwards and he says, um, he should go unnamed, but he said, uh, well, they may not have understood it, but they sure related to it. <laughs> another act of condescension, you know, another, yeah, another sure. sort of extension of the structure of oppression, which is culture, which is higher education. Right. No, in fact, they understood it and we're relating to it. You know, like they they explicated it in a way that, you know, really touched at a very deep level what this play was speaking to. And we can't, as a culture, cede authority to people who have no education. How, how could they were training? How could they possibly know? And so it becomes this really critical thing that we are trying to create a space with a different hierarchy where we can validate and we can celebrate the insights that come from the audience and um, that are not going to happen in a book club. They're not going to happen in a lifelong learning society session where people are, have the script up in front of their faces and are reading along with the performance and then analyzing it. They're only going to happen when people open themselves to the direct experience of the play. Theater, and I would argue ancient plays themselves, aren't literary artifacts. Some say they are. I, I disagree. They, I think they're f blueprints for felt emotional experiences that happen in real time. So, you know, you can either open yourself to that and have it, or you can create all these distancing strategies within yourself to say, well, this, is, this isn't about anything. We recently did a performance of one of our projects at Columbia University, our military project. Columbia brought us to perform for the um, first year students in the core curriculum. Hmm. And we said, we'll come and perform as long as you give us the budget to bring 75 men and women experiencing homelessness who also served in the military to each performance. We provide them transportation and dinner, which is what we do for a lot of our audiences. And we give them a sort of privileged place in the audience and we encourage them to help us understand the play. And this, I watched this um, and listened very intently as a, a African-American Vietnam veteran who was experiencing homelessness actively at the time, raised his hand and responded to the sort of sorrow and the betrayal he saw in Sophocles' Ajax and um, related it to his own experiences, both at war and returning to from Vietnam. And after he finished speaking, an 18-year-old at Columbia raised his hand, and he, he was sort of trembling, and he kind of took the microphone, and he said, until this moment, I didn't realize these plays were about anything. And um, I thought that was a great, you know, that's the beginning of education for me. Uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, I think so much of uh, higher education is actually working against that res rev revelation, that, that realization that these stories are not mere entertainment. They're, they're told out of necessity and they're passed gen down from generation to generation because there's a real need to communalize these, these emotional experiences. So this, this Vietnam veteran who was sitting up toward the front after the young man said what he said, turned back to him, the young man, and said, thank you so much. It's really refreshing to hear a young person's perspective. And this beautiful exchange, this intergenerational exchange started to take place. And um, I think that's also something that's possible. We may go in with all of our education and our privilege and our sort of presumptions about what these experiences should be like and our desire to critique them. And then when approached via this other way by opening up the audience, putting the light on the audience, making the audience the main event, we're opened. All it takes is one person to crack open a room. The first person who spoke at one of our events was a military spouse, and she stood up and she said, um, hello, my name is Marcel. 
I'm the proud mother of a Marine and the wife of a Navy SEAL. And my husband went away four times to war. And each time he came back, just like Ajax did in the play, dragging invisible bodies into our house. And to quote from the play, our home is a slaughterhouse. Mm. Now, all she had to do was say that. And all the other spouses in this room of 400 Marines and their spouses felt empowered to follow her lead. And yet following her lead could be career ending for their spouses if they spoke out. And so what happens when the stakes of life and death that were sort of imitated on stage are real in the audience? And of course, if you told, if I, you know, you told me 15 years ago that ancient, ancient plays could save lives or ancient plays could be of life or death, you know, stakes for someone listening to them, I'd say that sounds ridiculous. Um, but I can't tell you the number of settings, number of people, the number of experiences we've had where we've seen that to be true. Where you've heard that things have changed for the people beyond just, I had a night I'll never forget, but actually move them in, in some way to take some action afterwards. Absolutely. So, I mean, again, anecdotally, but of course, we've also had our work studied by all kinds of uh, people. But I can't tell you the number of people who've come up and said, whether it's at the performance or reached out to us six weeks or even six months later and said... I saw myself in that character mm. and uh, checked myself into a 28-day rehab program the next morning. Mm. Or I was thinking about taking my own life and I sought help that night. Or I had my first conversation with my spouse about something that we'd never been able to talk about. Or I heard my deceased father speaking through the play and understood him in a new way and it mm. brought peace. Or even, I mean, it sounds completely implausible, but I mean, there's, there was a performance where someone who was plotting an act of violence came forward and sought help and the act of mass violence was averted by virtue of the person being given an outlet to express their rage and, and their, their emotional distress. Mm. So yes, I mean, when the sort of sum total of the, and these are just the things that are like right on the surface, you know, when it's so clear that simply by turning the lights on in the audience and empowering it to speak, all of these incredible, you know, and beneficial and communally sort of healthy things then occur, I think about you know, what an act of violence it is that we plunge audiences into darkness and marginalize audiences and silence them. And then for most audiences, because let's be clear, the theater is for the privileged elite and mostly white audience still, you know, never have the experience of even engaging with the theater. Or, or it could be a negative experience if you wind up there, but, you know, if you somehow get a ticket, but you're there and, and you feel like the performance is condescending to you and your fellow audience members are kind of condescending to you. It, I mean, I, it goes far beyond that, too. It's it, the whole structure of the theater itself has to be dismantled. Yeah. If I walk into even the so-called public theater here in New York City that's for the people, by the people and their motto, and I walk past a security apparatus... Yeah. Now, I'm from a community where people are incarcerated at a really high level uh, and over-policed uh, in a kind of security state. That Even that alone puts me in a certain place. Then I walk up to get my ticket, and this whole transactional thing happens where tickets are, you know, they're, they're free for Shakespeare in the Park, but, you know, for other events, they're, you know, they're, they're a lot more. And, and that active transaction puts me in a certain place. And then that active transaction takes place often in New York City and other cities at a bulletproof window. And then after we get my ticket, I walk into a hallway where there's somebody with a walkie talkie who's sort of yelling at me and barking imperatives and sort of hurting me through the space and anticipating I'm going to somehow break the rules and have my phone on or, you know, and these things sound like totally innocuous to people for whom, you know, who go regularly into spaces where that occurs. But all of them accrue to say to a huge portion of people who not only could benefit from being engaged with the theater, but who really could benefit the theater. Right. This is not for you. 
you don't belong here. And it, you have nothing to contribute, so sit in silence. Don't dare sneeze or unwrap your candy. You know, yeah. you're, you're, you know, this is a privilege <laughs> for you. And we, the artists, we, the artists, are bestowing the gift of culture upon you. Right. And where do you take your performances to? What kinds of venues? I mean, in a, in a given week, um, you know, a few years ago, we had the privilege of being named Artists in Residence for New York City. And uh, in a given week under that under that appointment, we would perform in a homeless shelter at Rikers Island, the sort of famed jail, uh, in a Title I school, in a public park, in a domestic violence shelter, in a public housing unit in a NYCHA development. And we'd be performing plays of Shakespeare, of ancient Greek plays, Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams, contemporary writers, the Book of Job, all these texts. And it put our this thesis to the test. Hmm. And the thesis that became clear after years and years of doing this was, in fact, education and privilege was an impediment to understanding these plays. And that the, cl- the further we went into communities that had experienced the sort of depths of the extremities of these experiences in the plays, the richer the insights would be coming back from the audiences. So, you know, my favorite place to perform, the place that I think holds the most insight is, is really a homeless shelter. And that's not what people equate with theater, but that's where the audience really is. Mm. One of the many places where, you know, no one inside the space is, you know, in any way, you know, misses the stakes of every word that are being said. Right. One of my first performances in a homeless shelter, we were at a, a place in Long Island City, which is called the Borden Avenue Veterans Residence, and we performed this play, Philoctetes, about, by Sophocles, about a veteran who's abandoned by his own men on an island on account of a chronic illness. He develops in the way to the Trojan War after being bit, bitten by a snake, and he's left like an animal in a cave to fend for himself for nine years. And I was watching, I was looking out in the audience and the shelter and there were a bunch of men in the front row and they were on methadone um, for sort of heroin uh, uh, addiction treatment. And they were kind of listening to the side and their eyes were closed and their heads were drooping. And I thought they're not listening and who else, my own sort of sense of condescension and privilege, my own sort of wrongheaded understanding of what was happening in the room early on and and we got to the discussion and I, I said, did anybody relate to this? And I asked a couple questions and all the men who were listening to the side, their hands shot up mm. and their eyes came open and they started to unpack the play. And this one guy shouted out in the back, hey, Brian, you got a year? I got 10 volumes back in my cubicle. Mm. It was electrifying. It was like a veil was pulled back and I saw that uh, everything I'd been taught, all the things that the sort of structures of culture and higher education reinforce was wrong, uh, at least came to this, these stories. I mean, I, I don't apply that to everything. But again, as I say, I don't see them as literary artifacts, but as psychosocial experiences to happen in a space with other people. Right. And so, you know, that's the thesis that continues to be borne out. And I would say really quickly that what Zoom has done for us, because we pivoted to the online space at the beginning of the pandemic, and our first performance of the Oedipus Project, our project on the pandemic and now on the climate crisis, we had uh, 15,000 people from more than 40 countries show up and, and, and an audience that reflected all the hard work we've been doing in underserved communities uh, for the last 13 years. So an audience that was predominantly, in terms of the people who raised their hands, women of color living in the hardest hit neighborhoods of the outer boroughs that at that time were being decimated by COVID, the first wave. And their perspectives on the play and on what was happening in the present moment were so life-changing to hear. And they radiated out across the world through Zoom. And then Zoom became so ubiquitous 
so accessible, like the word television, that we started to hear from, you know, janitors in their janitorial closets, custodial closets at a hospital in the Bronx that was the epicenter of COVID in the Bronx. Mm. You know, looking at the behind them on Zoom, you see their their brooms, you know, and then someone uh, in a homeless shelter in Brownsville in a in a, um, a kitchen. Uh, who who saw AOC's tweet about our performance of Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon, The Drum Major Instinct, and ends up being a centerpiece of the discussion. And we're we're in the kitchen in the homeless shelter where she's alone, you know, in front of a refrigerator. And this being able to reach into spaces that theater can't touch has become another sort of ethical extension of the tool of a Greek tragedy that we're now deploying, or not just Greek tragedy, but the, the idea of theater as a way of communalizing trauma. And I can't tell you how exciting it is that we can now touch people in their homes, in their places of work, of worship. We can touch people in their cars. We can, we, we're, we're, we're connecting with people on research vessels in Antarctica and on aircraft carriers in the Pacific. And there's a kind of ethical, it's like, it's a, it's a digital amphitheater that Sophocles could never have imagined. Mm. So let me ask you about Sophocles so we can talk about your book here before we wrap things up. Sure, sure, I'm wondering, sure. is your translation because you love Sophocles and you kept up this interest in language, or is there something that you wanted to give to these plays that your experience with the theater makes these more adaptable to your project, or did your project of Theater of War Productions inform what you thought was needed in a new translation of Sophocles. Yeah, so there's a direct reciprocity in our process between the audience and the translation itself. One of the first essays I ever wrote to accompany my own translations published in 2015 uh, in a different volume called All That You've Seen Here Is God, which is for, for Greek plays, is the title is The Audience as Translator. Mm. I see no difference between directing and translating. Uh, directing has a larger palette than the translator who sits behind a, a table or a desk. Um, the the director can use light and sound and music and movement of bodies through space to, and 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 silence and all kinds of things. Um, but then there's another element of the work we do, which is the audience is a participating partner in the act of translation. So there's a reflexive relationship between the way the actors perform each night. Some of our actors have done over 100 events with us and they know, like I know, that once they hear an audience member tell a story and relate it to a quote or a line from the play, they'll never say that line again, you know, without remembering it. And it'll inform the way they perform. Well, similarly, as we workshop the work that we do, we do it reflexively with with audiences. And that informs the process of translation. The question I'm asking isn't is really for whom are we telling the story? Um, that's one of the questions at the center of my approach to translation. And also, does this work? Is it, does it serve that audience in some mm -hmm. direct? And that those aren't the questions that sort of formally being asked by most literary translators right. or even practitioners of theater. And so that's why it's different. And that's why I feel like um, the, 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 the translations should be, A, as direct as humanly possible uh, without sacrificing some of the structures of poetry that are in the ancient plays. And they should also leave room for the audience to interpret them and to participate in the translation and process. So um, that, that's maybe what characterizes these translations in, in Oedipus Trilogy. And I've been working on these translations for uh, more than 20 years now uh, in different settings. 
from the stage that Michael Brown graduated from at Ferguson and Ferguson or just outside of Ferguson at Normandy High School, where we premiered Antigone and Ferguson to the Oedipus uh, at King, the King uh, Oedipus Rex, which we premiered in a prison upstate New York called Eastern Correctional Facility for uh, over 100 men, uh, many of them doing 25 years to life to the Oedipus at Colonus project, which we you know, have developed and performed in conjunction with conversations with people experiencing homelessness or the refugee crisis. All of this informs the choices that I'm making or we're making together. Mm. Well, the book is called The Oedipus Trilogy. The author is Sophocles and the translator is Brian Dorries of Theater of War Productions, or maybe I should say Brian Dorries et al., since you've had some help <laughs> <Exactly>. there. <laughs> Brian, exactly. Do- like Brian, like Dor- Brian Dorries, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Okay, that is going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed that. My thanks to Brian Dorries of the Theater of War Company. Check them out at theaterofwar.com. That's theater, spelled E-R, not R-E. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Speaking of which, I'm glad you found us today, and I hope you manage to find us again next time. We might be returning to the 20th century with some Yeats... Or we might be looking back at the 18th century, one of my favorites, with a book that is definitely one of my favorites and maybe, in fact, my favorite book of all time. I will let you think about that one until then. And we have, let's see, Gwendolyn Brooks on the horizon. What a great poet she is. And how much fun it's going to be to take a trip to Chicago to spend some time with her. Chicago, that underrated city. And Brooks that underrated poet. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.